0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Hard to get up and preach after that, I'm not going to lie. Hey, we're in week eight of our uh, Uncommon Joy series, like Matt said. Let me say a word of prayer, and we'll dive into the book of Philippians. Jesus, we pray that you would bless your word this morning, that you would, um, by your spirit, help us to apply the truths that you're giving us through the Apostle Paul this morning. We pray for the areas of our lives that may be blocked off right now, that we have closed up, that we don't want you touching. And we pray that you would pry those open because we know that you're working for our good and we know that you are working for our healing and our wholeness in you. So have your way this morning, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen. Uh, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, Philippians three, twelve through 14. I'm going to start this morning by reading our text. And the Apostle Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to start this morning with a simple question I want to lay before us what is it you want most in life? Think about it. What is it, if you had to say, I want this most, this is the thing I want most in life, what is it? I've spent some time thinking about that question this week and I, this is my realization. It's a hard question to answer. That is a hard question to answer if you really get down to it, to single out one thing and say, this is what I want most in my life. I have a, a four-year-old though, and for her, it seems moment by moment, She's pretty aware of what she wants most in life. Um, She's developed what we'll call, what I think I'd call a wanter. It's this thing that's constantly wanting. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. I want cartoons. I want chocolate. I want candy. I don't want that cartoon. I don't want that piece of chocolate. I want, I want, I want. And she makes sure that we all know exactly what she wants by the exertion of her willpower, right? I can trace what my daughter wants. Because she exerts everything, all her energy, all her time, and her resources to let me know this is what I want until that thing changes. Then her energy goes in that direction. And so as hard as that question is to answer, I think the line we can trace back, much like me watching my daughter, is how do we spend our time? How do we spend our energy? And how do we spend our resources? Because I think that will give us a guaranteed line back to the thing our hearts are are really after. And the Apostle Paul this morning is going to show us what his biggest want is. He's gonna show us, and he shows us throughout Philippians that it's not gonna be a tricky or surprise answer. Paul's gonna make it very clear to us this morning that the reason he is on planet Earth drawing breath is because he wants more of Jesus. Like that is what he is after. That's what he's organizing. And, and as I read Philippians, if I could be really honest this morning, there's a lot of times where these verses that might at a, at a, like a 10,000 foot view, seemed like really encouraging. Actually, when I really dig my teeth into him, I'm like, that's a tough verse. That, like, I, I can totally resonate with David in the Psalms more easily than Paul in most of these epistles. Like, David is like, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Next page, why, God, why? What is wrong? I can, I, I can identify with that type of prayer life. Paul is like, um, to live as Christ, to die is gain. You know my first thought, honestly, when I really think about a verse like that, to live as Christ, to die is gain? I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Like, Paul, what is going on here? Or, or try this one the, one. the text Matt walks through last week as a reminder. Indeed, Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And Matt eloquently walked us through last week what that word really means. It's poop. (laughs) He counts everything as poop compared to knowing Jesus. And having the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the powers of of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, I know that verse, I love that verse, I've meditated on that verse, I've read that verse hundreds of times. It's beautiful, it's inspiring, it's rich until I try to lay my entire life on it. Until I put everything that I am on that verse, then it kind of becomes something I gotta wrestle with. Something I gotta gotta really come to terms with because you know what Paul just said to me, to you? He says, in my life, everything is of lesser value than Christ and I'll pay Any price to have more of Him. There's no price I won't pay to have more of Jesus in my life. So you wanna take my family? Take my family because Jesus is better than my family. You wanna take my health? Take my health because Jesus is better than my health. You wanna take my kids? Take my kids because Jesus is better than my kids. You wanna take my money? Take my money because Jesus is better than my money. That's tough. That is big, like can I honestly say with Paul, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, like to not get to watch my, wa- my daughters that I love walk down the aisle, to see them grow, that that's gain because if I depart from this life, it's ushering me into eternity in joy with my true treasure, Jesus Christ. Can I honestly say that? I'll, I'll lay before you as one of your pastors at this church this morning, I don't know that in 2018, in the city of Los Angeles, that I even have a category for this kind of talk. I don't know. It's tough. I'm 20 years into following Christ, and I think that if you honestly and closely examined my life, you'd find all sorts of things in my life that I value above Christ. And so if I'm not really careful, when I read through a book like Philippians, I can if I really honestly engage it, I can start to feel crushed. I can start to feel this weight, this frustration of like, Paul, how do I get there like to where you are? I want to be like that, but how do I honestly get to where I want Jesus like you want Jesus, Paul? How do I get there? Then I get to today's text and I take a deep breath. I feel some weight lift and some freedom to pursue Christ and grace because it says this, Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this that I'm writing about, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, here Paul finally brings things down to my level. And he does two things that really encourage me and one thing in this verse that really challenges me. I'll I'll share those. The, The thing that Paul does in this, one of the things that Paul does in this verse that really encourages me is he just acknowledges the reality that he even wrestles with this, this spiritual, divine discontentment and where he is at in his walk with Jesus? Like Paul lays it before us, he says, I'm not there yet. Like, you know that feeling you have most days that you're just not who you should be in Jesus? that you don't love Jesus the way you should love him, that you're not as patient as you should be, that you're not as kind as you should be, that you're not as pure as you should be. You know that sin you wrestle with? Paul says, I got that too. I'm not perfect. I'm not there. And that encourages me because it tells me there's room in this Christian walk for Jesus in grace to slowly shepherd us towards the final destination of likeness to him. It also encourages me here that Paul expresses dependence. Because he says, I press on to make it my own. Because why? Because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. Like the place all of this is flowing from is a new identity in Christ through his finished work on the cross. I'm not trying to work. I'm not trying to climb a ladder. I'm resting in who I am, dependent on the finished work of God. But then he doesn't just leave me encouraged only. It's encouraging, but it's challenging because he says, all of this, It's not this this feeling of discontentment in who I am in Christ, this acknowledgement that I'm not perfect, this dependence on God. It's not drifting me into apathy. It's not making me spiritually complacent. It's not letting me get comfortable. He says, I press on to make it my own. He's after it, even in this tension. And that challenges me because Paul's not saying, yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know what, grace, oh well. He's not saying that, he's saying this grace, it's pushing me forward to want Jesus more. He's pressing on. It is so much easier to be spiritually complacent than it is to fight to cherish Jesus. Can we be honest enough? I'll be honest enough with you. The natural pattern and rhythm of my life, apart from daily coming to Jesus to draw strength, to draw desire, to meet with him in prayer, the daily pull, the gravity of my life is away from Jesus. That's what's in me. And so there's this fight that has to happen to me. Jesus, I want you more than anything. I'm fighting, I'm pushing towards you. So I live in a 900 square foot house with two toddlers. Guess how many times a day I have to sweep the floor? <laughs> I live in a 900-foot house with two toddlers. I probably sweep the floor, and I'm not exaggerating. If I'm home a whole day on a day off, probably six times. Six times. Those of you with kids can identify, right? You clean, 10 seconds later, what happened to this house? Right? That is the pattern of having small kids in Los Angeles. That is a picture of our spiritual life. The natural gravity of our lives does not pull us into godliness. It's something we have to fight for. We have to frequently be sweeping the floor. Our culture is preaching to us every moment of every day. And you know what its message is? You know the sermon you're getting every time you look at your phone, every time you turn on the TV or look at the internet? The message you are getting is this. You will be happy. You will be happy if you are rich and secure in your wealth, if you're comfortable, if, you're, if, you're, if you can afford a good life, this is, the, this is how you'll be happy. This is the pathway there. You know what that message doesn't do? It doesn't breed desire for Jesus. It doesn't make us want Jesus. It makes us complacent, and so we have to begin fighting. We have to wage war, not to earn our salvation, but to know Jesus more because he's good. So. Big statement this morning. Following Jesus means moving him away from the fringes of my life and placing him at the center. That's what following Jesus means. It's one of the things. It means moving Jesus away from the fringes of my life and placing him at the center. Verse 12, Paul says he presses on to make Christ his own because Christ Jesus had made him his own. This is Paul saying Jesus is not an expansion pack in his life. Jesus is not his personal butler that he turns to when he needs something. Jesus is not an accessory. Jesus is not a Sunday morning hobby. I've heard one pastor say it this way. Church is just a lame hobby. Like if what you're doing here this morning is pursuing a hobby. It's like I go to church on Sunday sometimes because that's what I do. I want to say there's room for you here. Please welcome. But I'm, just, I'm pushing us towards Christ this morning. I'm so glad you're here. But I want to say this. All right. Come on. But it is, it's, if you want to, you know what a good hobby is? Going to the beach on Sunday morning and surfing. We live in California. It's a beautiful place. If you're just here because church is a thing you do, really? Like there's better things to do. But if, if there's something going on in your life that's pulling you, say, maybe there is a God, maybe there is this eternity, maybe there is a heaven, maybe there is all of this stuff going on, maybe I should give God some energy and time. For Paul, Jesus is the beginning, middle, and end of the reason he exists and lives. So, can I have your permission this morning to nerd out for a moment? Um, I am what I would like to call a moderate Tolkien geek. Um, I'm not like, I don't own any robes or swords or daggers. Um, But I do enjoy the stories, and I've read the books, and I I think they're pretty great. And uh, literary experts have dissected the stories that Tolkien has written. And he's, they've put them into two categories. They've said there's two basic types of stories that J.R. Tolkien tells. And, and the first category is this thing called adventure stories, the adventures. And the second category is this thing called quests. So he writes adventures and he writes quests. And what they found is that we're far more captivated by stories that are quests than we are by adventures. So can I tell you what the marks of these stories are? An adventure narrative would be a story like The Hobbit. It's a there-and-back-again type of narrative, a there-and-back-again type of narrative. In an adventure, an opportunity arises that the anti- or protagonist looks out at, and he, it looks enriching. It looks like fun. It looks like an exciting adventure. And so he chooses, he chooses to leave his home, to go out, to leave his comfortable world, whatever, whomever that is, and go somewhere dangerous, adventurous, and then he or she returns home to life as normal, having that beautiful adventure shimmering in their memories as something that has enriched and added to their life. That's that's an adventure narrative. And Tolkien knew what he was doing because literally Bilbo Baggin's memoir in the story, if you read it, is called There and Back Again, a Hobbit's Tale. Bilbo goes, he has an adventure, it's fun, and he comes back home and returns to life as normal. It's an adventure. But the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it's a quest. Oh, and a quest, quest is different. It's good. I like quests. So so whereas a quest is, uh, an adventure is something you choose to add to your life to enrich it, a quest, get this, a quest chooses you. A quest chooses you. You are presented with a previously unseen reality with implications so unavoidable, unavoidable and huge and massive that you have no choice but to respond to it. And when you do, you are pulled into something so deep that you are never the same. See, whereas an adventure story is something you choose and you come back the same, a quest is something that chooses you and when you enter into it, you are so radically changed by the, advent, by the quest you've entered into that even if you get to go home, something in you, will have been so modified, so reborn by that quest that you can't just engage the life you had before on the same terms. That the life you had before won't seem complete, it won't seem fulfilling, it won't seem meaningful enough. A quest is something you don't get to come home from. And again, Tolkien knew what he was doing because how does the Lord of the Rings trilogy end? Well, Mr. Frodo carries the one ring to rule them all into the fires in which they were forged in Mount Doom awesome <laughs> and he tries to come back home to the quaint pleasures of the shire but when he does Tolkien writes he's unsatisfied there's something different and how does the story end he joins the elf lords nerd um, he joins the elf lords and sails off to the gray havens in search of something bigger in search of something more meaningful see hear this the Christian life is not an adventure the Christian life is a quest The Christian life is not something you add to your life to enrich it. The Christian life is a new center that your entire life is lived out from. And it so radically redefines your priorities, your desires, the way you think, the way you act, that you don't engage life the same anymore and you never will. I remember the moment when I realized, I was about 25, and I can literally remember having this moment where I realized, oh my goodness, I'm gonna die pursuing Jesus. Whoa. It was like a wedding day almost, like standing before my bride going till death do us part. It was like this moment I have Jesus, like you're what my life's about now. It's entering into a quest. I knew a guy in Chicago named John Kelly. And uh, John was, uh, he grew up on the streets of Chicago uh, in gangs. And he, uh, long story short, ended up in prison for being complicit in murder. Because while he was robbing a house, one of his friends actually shot someone. And John was there, and so he went to prison. While he was in prison, he got put into solitary confinement. Um, And in solitary confinement, and this story literally sounds made up, but it's not. Uh, One of the prison guards gave him a Bible. And so he sat in solitary confinement, and he read through the entire Bible front to back three, four times. And in that process, Jesus, by his spirit, broke into John's life and transformed his heart and saved him alone in solitary confinement. And so John gets out of prison and he takes an internship at the church I was working at in Chicago as a, a training to be a pastor. And one day John and I, I was a worship leader at the campus he was at. Um, we went on a walk, got a hot dog, sat by the water. And I remember John looking at me, telling me about his story in his life. And he looked at me and he said, man, I don't, it's, these words will ring in my mind. He said, Jesus didn't save me in prison so that I could live a comfortable little life here in Chicago for myself. He said, every morning when I wake up, you know what my mindset is? Every morning when I wake up in Chicago, my mindset is, Jesus, I'm here to serve you. I'm not here to get comfortable. And everything I have, all of my energy is going to go to make you known and to know you more. And that is my mind frame. Because Jesus didn't do what he did in my life so that I could get comfortable. Jesus did it for a reason, for his glory. That, and you see, John, that's, that's John saying this to me. This is John saying, I'm on a quest now. Jesus isn't on the fringes of my life as an accessory. Jesus is my life. And for Paul, in our text today, he's saying, I want Jesus. Jesus isn't an adventure for me. He's a quest. He's redefined my reality. And he's become my reality. And there's no going home. And so Paul presses on to know Jesus. Another big statement this morning. Following Jesus means forgetting what's behind and pressing on what's ahead. Following Jesus means forgetting what's behind and pressing on to what's ahead. Let's read verse 13 together one more time. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You could tell in this verse that Paul's a preacher because he says, one thing I do, and then he lists like three things. And you're like, all right, Paul. But the reality is of how we're supposed to view this is that these three things are one thing. Like they have to be done together in order to work, right? Like this is how this is done. And he's saying, what do I do? I'm pressing on. And how am I pressing on? The first thing Paul says we have to do is forget what is behind. You want a guaranteed roadblock to pursuing and knowing and rejoicing and resting in Christ that is being hung up in your past mistakes. It is being hung up in the things you have done in the past. So I want to say this, some of us here this morning are stuck on our past failures. We carry this deep-seated, powerful sense of shame for mistakes we made before Jesus came into our lives, or perhaps even after. I just say this this morning, shame is a powerful force. Shame is a powerful force. It's a visceral force. It's palpable. It hits you like a wave. I can talk from experience. Shame is something that washes over you and you feel it and you think these thoughts of, I can't believe I went there. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I was a part of that activity. And you know what begins to happen if we're not careful? That begins to define us. That shame begins to become the truest thing about us. That shame becomes a monkey on our back. Every time we draw close to Jesus to receive grace, the enemy rouses up this condemnation of, yeah, but do you remember who you were? I want to say this. I believe this morning for those of us that wrestle with shame that keeps us from pressing on, Jesus wants to do two things with our shame. Jesus wants to do two things with our shame. Number one, he wants wants to turn our shame, he wants to break the chains of shame, and he wants to turn it into a tool in your life. See, your shame exists for a reason. Jesus wants to use your shame to point you to the reality of your need for a Savior. Like your shame is there to point you to the reality of a need you have to be saved by the shameless one, by Jesus who was perfect, who did not fail. Our shame should push us towards our Savior. But then once our shame is in the hands of our Savior, we realize that he bows over us like the woman in John chapter 8 and says, I don't condemn you anymore. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. That's the voice of Jesus. And so that shame, when you realize you've come to a God who not only has broken your shame, but does not condemn you for your shame, but rather invites you in as a child, you know what begins to happen? That shame actually turns into worship. That shame begins to become praise. That's what Jesus does with it. And if you're here this morning, you're saying, not me, pastor. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the stuff behind me. Well, you might wanna go read Acts chapter seven if you're saying that, because in Acts chapter seven, we meet a Pharisee named Saul. And Saul is persecuting this new movement called Christianity that claimed that a crucified Jewish rabbi rabbi named Jesus was Yahweh incarnate. And this movement was springing up. And this, this, this Pharisee named Saul is standing and the first Christian martyr, Stephen, preaches this awesome sermon about how the whole Old Testament was actually pointing forward to Jesus and that all these Pharisees had missed it, that they'd missed the point that the Savior, the promised one was Jesus and he had come and he's preached this awesome sermon and all these people are enraged. It's a scandal and they pick up stones to stone him, literally throw rocks at him until he dies. And we're told that this guy Saul is standing there with his arms folded and the people laid their coats at his feet so that they could get full range of motion with their throws. You know who this guy Saul was? Most of you probably do. That's Paul. That's the apostle Paul, the guy who wrote Philippians, the man we're reading today. So don't think that when he says, I forget what's behind me, that Paul's just making some poetic flourish. It's not a poetic flourish to him. He knows he's been there. He can think, he can look back and go, I can't believe it was me. Like I devoted my life as a Pharisee to the law and to understanding the promised one that was to come. And then when he came, I was a part of his crucifixion. I didn't just oppose him or miss him. I literally was part of the people that put God to death. You don't think that put shame in the heart of Paul. And yet he says this, I forget what's behind. Why? Because he wants us to see how great Jesus's grace is. How incredible it is. How immeasurable it is and how powerful it is. So if you're here thinking, my shame, you ever killed anyone? (laughs) Paul had. And he says he forgets. Secondly, we don't just stop looking backwards to our shame, but we strain forward to what lies ahead. And this is good because so many of us, I think, are tempted to believe that the greatest works God has done for us or in us or through us are behind us in past seasons of life, like the best days are behind or perhaps our spiritual victories have satisfied us to the point that we've relented straining forward, believing that the best and most important work God has to do is ahead of us. Now, Paul had had some pretty great spiritual victories at this point. He's in the process of becoming the greatest church planner the world's ever known. But he says, I'm not focused on the p- church planning that's behind me. I'm not focused on what I've accomplished or the growth I've had in Jesus or the fact that I've literally had an interactions where I've seen the glory of Jesus In its physical form, like I'm not hung up on that. I'm pushing forward to what's ahead. I'm pushing forward. That's what Paul's doing, and that's what we're here to do this morning. So as we come in for a landing, I want to look at one more passage where Paul describes this straining. This fight to forget what's behind, to strain for what's ahead. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9.24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul writes this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Left after preaching to others, I myself, myself should be disqualified. A couple things I want us to see here. So first Paul says this. He says that all athletes, like athletes. And so first, he's not talking about you or me here in this verse. So like, so like if you play basketball at the Y and have a membership at Crunch Fitness and go three times a week. Like he's not talking to you. He's saying at the highest level of athletics. Olympian level, there are people that literally organize their entire life from everything they eat, everything they drink, the patterns and rhythms of their sleep, their entire life is organized around peak physical performance in one particular sport and he's saying they do this they organize their entire life to excel in this one sport for a perishable wreath for a prize think of a gold medal that is perishable that's going to end up burning or being thrown into a junkyard and he's saying but us in the pursuit of godliness we do it for an imperishable wreath something that can't be lost for a glory that's never fading that's stored up for us in heaven and so he's saying they do that level of exertion how much more should we be organizing our life around knowing and loving and cherishing Jesus. But then he goes on, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He says, "I'm not mailing the sin. I'm not just, I'm not just hoping for the best. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." This is another verse that's uh, encouraging and challenging. Here's why it's encouraging. Um, moment of honesty again. You know what I want to do when life bums me out? Oh, when I'm sad or anxious or had a tough day? or You know what I want to do, the things I want to run to? I'll just tell you. Um, I want to get in my car and put my headphones in and drive to Chick-fil-A and get three chicken sandwiches, spicy with extra ranch, and I want to pull into an abandoned parking lot and eat them by myself. That's how I want to medicate. Or I want to send my wife and kids on a vacation and put on the most comfortable sweats in the world and watch six and a half hours of Netflix by myself in a dark room. <laughs> That's what I want to do. That is, like, that is Tyler's desires. That's Tyler's recipe for medication, for self-medicating on a bad day. And you know why this comforts me? Because Paul says, guess what? I have to discipline my body too. Which means this, even Paul had all kinds of desires and tough moments other than just running to Jesus. Like his first instinct wasn't either, life's hard, I'm on my knees, Jesus, I need you. No, he disciplined himself into this. He had to fight for it. That's encouraging to me because I do too. And I fail so often. But it's something that Paul's saying, I'm doing. I'm actually doing this. I'm actually pressing on. I'm actually disciplining my body. I'm actually serious about this. And that challenges me to press on, to strain, to make and remember that Jesus is the prize, and in those moments, not to medicate with other things. Now, here's the thing. Paul, as we've discussed, can feel overwhelming. Like, a, whoa, 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 Paul. Discipline your body. Beat your body. This is, this is getting a, a touch intense. Um, well, I recently uh, started jogging again after about three years of not jogging three or four years of not jogging probably. And when I started jogging again, um, I had to just go out and run one mile. And guess what? It hurt bad for one mile. I used to run a lot more than a mile. I'm about two months into running now. and I've been running three or four times a week. And guess what? I'm running closer to three, three and a half miles now. And guess what? It hurts. <laughs> it still really hurts, but I'm running farther. I'm able to run farther. And so often I think that we don't take the first step of our spiritual journey because we're discouraged that we're not already on step 10. So often we don't take that first step towards pressing into Jesus because we already feel the shame or this discouragement or the sense of failure that that we're not already the spiritual giant and beast that we just wish and feel like we should be. And so we don't ever start. And I want to say this, maybe for you disciplining yourself making your body your slave, pressing in to know Jesus just looks like, what's that first step? What's what's the one mile jog for me? What's the thing Jesus is calling me that's just this easy, practical next step that I can discipline myself in a daily routine of filling my life with things that rouse my affections for Jesus and remind me how good he is? Don't fail to run one mile because you can't already run 10. For you, maybe it's just 10 minutes in the morning with a cup of coffee and a journal, praying to Jesus. Maybe it's just a walk outside, looking around and praying. Maybe it's getting involved in a community group or Christian fellowship. Whatever the case is, the call this morning is for us to imitate Paul as he presses in to Christ. So I wanna end by asking us all two questions. And I, I forced myself, uh, I'm wrestling with them still a bit, but I've, I've forced myself to answer these questions this week. And so I wanna lay them before us and say, This is our homework this morning. This is what we're gonna do together as a church. We're gonna all choose to answer these questions. The first question is this. In what specific ways is God calling me to press on to know him more? And what is hindering me? In what specific, I'm not talking, don't just keep it simple. What's one specific thing? What's two specific things in your life that you know God by his Holy Spirit has his finger on in your life and he's saying, press in on this. Be diligent about this. Pursue me. What's that one thing? Press in. The second question is this. What patterns in my life are creating spiritual complacency? And how can I replace them with patterns that stir up affection for Jesus? Analyze the patterns in your life this week. What are the patterns in your life that are making you complacent? What are the patterns in your life that allow that message that Jesus isn't the thing that fulfills you, that all these other things are actually what you need. What are those things? How can I rid my life of the things that breed spiritual complacency and how can I replace them intentionally with ways to spend my time, ways to spend my resources, ways to spend my energy that make Jesus and remind my soul that Jesus is what I need? And I think if we really answer those two questions, it's a step towards Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing this morning. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And and so I've found a lot of rest in that as I have prepped this week. So I've kind of wrestled back and forth on like, how do I I, first myself and you guys, like how do I gently with grace encourage us towards Christ? Because I've sat under preachers that do this the wrong way. They're like mad and they think that their anger is the thing that will rouse people into holy lives. It's just a bad recipe. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Paul reminds us in in verse 15 of that. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, the way he's talking about, about pressing into Jesus. And if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. God is the one that reveals these areas to us. God is the one that shows us where we're supposed to press in. Not me, not Matt, not Story City Church at all. The Holy Spirit at work in your life, gently, lovingly, Faithfully, constantly pressing into you, leading you to press into him. So let that happen in your heart this morning. But More than anything, church, let's rest in the finished work of Jesus this morning. This is not a ladder to heaven. You are saved by grace. Let that reality push you towards godliness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that Paul gave us this example that is both encouraging and challenging this example that we're free to admit that we're not perfect that we're not there yet but not let that breed complacency in our lives to let that breed this desire that rises up within us through the work of your spirit to fight to know you more and to arrange our lives in ways that help us to have affection and to see you as beautiful be with us now Help us to put this into practice by your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You can stand.